The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Great show today. We're joined by Scott Bach, CEO of Greenhill, one of the first boutique investment banks to go public back in 2004. And he's sort of feeling the hurt from that decision in recent months. His shares are down more than 40% this year. We'll talk to him about why the market is bearish on his bank right now, the pros and cons to being a publicly traded company in the first place, and why he made the decision to go public. But first... It's time for our weekly segment, What's the Big Deal? And joining us again after a two-week hiatus is Bloomberg Managing Editor of Global Deals, Jeff McCracken. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Mr. Sherman. So we're coming down to the end of the year, and yet this week we've had another mega deal. Last week, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist Brooke Sutherland told us that this year has been the year of the largest ever, with deals in nearly every sector seemingly being the largest ever. And yet, we can add another one to the list, this time Dow Chemical announcing it's merging with DuPont. That's the largest ever deal in the chemicals industry. It creates a combined company of about $130 billion. So, Jeff, why is this happening? (laughs) And and I incorrectly assumed after Pfizer-Allergan that we were done with the the ridiculously big deals. The the why of it is, I, I would say, a combination. One is there are activists. So these are shareholders. The names that you would hear are often people like Carl Icahn or a Bill Ackman or Nelson Peltz. These are shareholders who don't just buy a stake in a company and sit on their hands. They buy a stake and then they go around and talk to other shareholders and get them on their side, if you will, to force big situations or big developments at these companies. Sometimes it's asset sales. Sometimes it's a sale of the whole company. So in the case of DuPont, there was a man named Nelson Peltz at Trion, which is a very well-known activist fund. And then over at Dow Chemical, a guy named Dan Loeb, who has a a big activist uh, fund. The, The two of them had been agitating for a while for something big to happen, either asset sales or some sort of some sort of merger going to happen. They were trying to push to happen, and I think that's a big reason why Dow and Dupont got together. The other big development was that Dupont, uh, their CEO, a woman named Ellen Kuhlman, was pushed out a couple months ago when the share prices started collapsing and a bunch of things she was promising she could not deliver on. So literally a day after she was. Uh, ousted or left, the the gentleman Edward Breen got a phone call from Andy Liveris, who's the chairman and CEO over at Dow, and he said, hey, let's talk about a deal. I mean, does it strike you as a little, I don't know if odd is the right word, but Dow Chemical is a 118-year-old company. DuPont was founded 213 years ago, and yet it seems like all the power is in the hands of these activist shareholders that you know, for for the large percentage of time within these companies, have nothing to do with the company, and then they're able to force these major changes. Yeah, it, it we're really in this weird environment where these activist shareholders they do a lot of homework and they find companies where either the shares haven't performed as well as their peers, or they find 
uh, or or and, or they will find shareholders within those companies that are a bit unhappy uh, because the shares haven't performed that well, and and they take a stake and they're able to influence these companies that, as you said, have been around for decades or centuries in some cases, and and force them to do extraordinarily big things, whether it's selling off assets that have been in their hands for for many many years, or in this case, for these two companies to sell and merge with one of their biggest rivals. It it is unusual for lack of a better word so look these are two companies that i think most americans are at least vaguely familiar with but for people that aren't what exactly do these companies do today so they're both agrochemical companies they have agricultural businesses within them that make seeds that farmers use or fertilizers that farmers use and then also they have chemicals businesses whether these are commodity chemicals businesses that make uh, plastics or specialty chemicals businesses that uh, will make uh, products that are used for solar in solar energy so they are pretty good pretty good you can look at them and get a sense of how the economy is doing because they touch so many different industries whether we're talking about farming or industrial or chemicals and is something going on in the chemicals industry right now that's that's leading these companies to think more about these bigger deals i know another deal we have talked about on this show has been Chem China and Syngenta potentially coming together. Syngenta, another company very similar, an agrochemical company. Is there something going on in this industry right now? Yeah, and the other name you got to mention is Monsanto because earlier this year we reported and reported quite frequently that Monsanto was trying to buy Syngenta and Syngenta kept saying no. And finally Monsanto walked away, I believe in August. And then not long after that, Syngenta shareholders were so angry they forced the Syngenta CEO out. And now we think Syngenta is a Again, exploring options, whether it's with ChemChina or Monsanto. I think the biggest thing that's going on is, A, the in, in, in the crop space or in the uh, farming space, there's not as much money being paid uh, to the agricultural businesses of these companies. So that's been a drag on their, on their earnings and on their sales. And the other thing is, I think they're all looking around realizing it's not a bad time to consolidate. The way the, U, the biggest U.S. health insurance companies came together where four became two or, or the way that uh, ABI looked out there and said, you know what, now's the time to buy SAB and let's consolidate the biggest brewing companies. And in fact, uh, looking at the details of this deal, it strikes me it seems to be quite similar to the one you mentioned just a few minutes ago, Pfizer merging with Allergan, in that these companies are going to come together only to break apart, right? Yeah, the only, the only, or the biggest difference here is the the speed at which this may occur. With Dow Dupont, they will probably they will quite quickly turn into they, they become one company, but not so far down the road they'll become three companies: one an ag business, one especially chemicals business, and then the third will be uh, the rest of the chemicals business that is left. Where with uh, Pfizer and Allergan, sometime down the road, 2017, 2018, they're going to sell off at least their generics business and probably other pieces within it. So I know there is a potential for uh, some regulators looking at Pfizer Allergan, at least with a critical eye. Do we see, uh, although that deal may not, in fact, get blocked, do we see sort of the same type of regulatory scrutiny for for Dow Chemical and DuPont, and who are the regulators exactly here? Yeah, so there will be a lot of scrutiny. I, I, I have sworn off the prediction business when it comes to how the regulators view things. It, it, it's it's become clear to me that in the final year and a half, two years of o, o, the Obama administration, the regulators at the Federal Trade Commission or at the Department of Justice, and those are the two that do probably the most scrutiny on, on these big deals, they've become more rigorous and are scrutinizing the deals more closely than they were 
three, four, five years ago. Um, I think the the health insurance deals I had mentioned earlier. I'm not sure, you know, whether those are going to get done. And those are people like Aetna and United Health and uh, Anthem, et cetera, that were that were doing mergers. Cigna was another one. Whether those deals are going to get approved is is up in the air to me. We reported just recently that Halliburton, uh, you know, they're trying to do a really big deal. They bought a company called Baker Hughes. We don't think the regulators are satisfied with um, what Halliburton is suggesting in terms of divestiture. So. Certainly, Dow DuPont is going to get a ton of scrutiny from the from DC. And, and I know another theme in this deal, although it's sort of a derivative of a theme, maybe the main reason for that Pfizer Allergan deal was the avoidance of taxes, uh, with Pfizer sort of doing a reverse merger so that Pfizer redomiciles to Ireland, where Allergan is based. Uh, but I believe there's sort of a tax component to this deal as well, even though. Both Dow and DuPont are based in the U.S. because it is the rare M&A transaction where we really see a true merger of equals, and there is a potential tax savings when, in fact, you do put two companies that are true mergers of equals together. That is that is true, and, and I don't know how big the tax saving is going to be. I'm not sure that they've able to they've come out yet to, to quantify that. Um, inevitably, sometimes it's not as uh, sexy to talk about. We, we focus on the names of the companies or the brands or the CEOs, but a lot of times these deals are driven, not even if they're not inversion deals, these deals are often driven by some sort of tax policy or some sort of tax planning. Yeah, there are two, two companies that are both about $60 billion dollars. I think there at least one report, I believe Reuters reported that people familiar with the deal said they thought the savings will far exceed the $3 billion in annual cost synergies that the companies came out and said they expected from the deal. So yet again, taxes perhaps being the one of the leading motivators. Maybe activist shareholders and taxes can be your themes of the year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and you know when these three companies are formed, whether that's next year or the year after, one of them, at least one of them, probably two of them will become targets that might get bought by their rivals, whether that's Monsanto or it's BASF or ChemChina, Syngenta, etc. A couple more questions just to end. One, do we know who's going to run the company? It's not entirely clear. Um, we know that Ed Breen is going to have, he's going to be the CEO of one of the companies. There was an announcement yesterday that a man named James Collins was going to run. I think he's going to run the agricultural business. Um, and then we know Andrew Liveris is going to be the chairman as well, again, of one of the companies. I think that's all yet to be determined. And you know, we will obviously keep an eye on that because, as I said, one of those companies, at least one of those companies, is going to become a target for uh, one of their rivals. And then does this deal put even more pressure on, say, Syngenta to do a deal, or should we see other deals that are going to be announced almost because of this deal? Yeah, I would say Syngenta is where we should keep our eye. And uh, that company, to me, is under extraordinary pressure to pull a deal. They were already under pressure because of the Monsanto interest earlier this year. I wouldn't be surprised if by, I don't know, Valentine's Day, um, April Fool's, whatever, sometime early next year, we're going to see Syngenta sold. Excellent. Thanks, Jeff. Joining us now, Scott Box, CEO of M&A advisory firm Green Hill. They do more than just M&A, too. Uh, Scott will tell you a little bit about that. Uh, before that, he was a managing director working deals at Morgan Stanley and was also a former M&A lawyer at Wachtell Lipton, so we made the switch from law to banking. Scott, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks. First, congratulations. Green Hill has been in existence for just about 20 years now, 11 as a public company. That is quite a feat. That's uh, absolutely correct. I believe next month is our 20th anniversary as a firm. So look, for our listeners that have never heard of Green Hill, what exactly do you guys do and don't do as a boutique bank? Sure. 
What we what we defined ourselves in as very early in our, our history, uh, and unlike almost all the other firms, large and small, is as a pure advisory firm. So we'll do almost anything that relates to advice. So we'll give advice, obviously, on M&A being the most active area, restructuring, capital raising, financing, sometimes government advice in various situations. Uh, so we'll do anything advisory, but we don't lend, underwrite, write research, trade, invest, or any of those other kind of activities one often associates with an investment bank. So what led you to join Green Hill at its inception? And then maybe as a follow-on question, why did you decide to go public in 2004? If I think back to when I left Morgan Stanley to go to a, a very brand new, very, very small handful of people at Green Hill, uh, Morgan Stanley was going through a big transition. They had announced but not yet completed the Dean Witter transaction, which took the firm from sort of a few thousand people to a few tens of thousands of people. And it felt like it was maybe changing the nature of the firm quite a lot more toward brokerage and private wealth. And, and clearly, they've gone a lot, a lot further down that road. And there were also some personal and leadership changes in the, in the firm at the time. And the combination of those was such that I thought, you know, why do I want to be part of a 40,000-person firm that does all kinds of different things that conflict with my business, which is advising CEOs and boards on, on transactions? So I thought it would be fun to go to a really small place and try to play a part in turning it into something significant over time. Now, when, when I first joined, that would have been, you know, 1997, the firm was, you know, in its very early months, and there was no thought that we could go public. I mean, we, it wasn't even, we, did, we didn't think we couldn't, we didn't even think about it at all. Uh, we just thought we're going to do what we like to do. Uh, we're going to attract colleagues who want to do it with us, and we'll see how things uh, develop over time. But as we sort of had several years of experience, you know, the firm got some scale, got some momentum, and coincidentally, I was working for a client at the time, uh, looking at various acquisitions in the financial services industry, and it struck me that a lot of the targets we were looking at were probably less well-known than we were, uh, were probably had less profitability in some cases than we did, uh, and were in a business that maybe was a little more constrained geographically or otherwise uh, than what we had. And I just had the thought, why couldn't we go public? And so we literally... You know, the first day of uh, business day of 2004, we called up a few investment banks, including Goldman Sachs, and said, hey, do you guys think we could go public? And, and uh, that's really how it, how it ended up happening. Nobody ever pitched us on the idea. We sort of came up with it, and we asked people, do you think it's possible? Do you ever regret being public, Scott? I mean, the, there's the quarterly the, the scrutiny that comes from being public, and then the quarterly earnings, and then just the inevitable, you know, you look at your share price. I, I think for this year, for example, you guys have been hit relatively hard for whatever reason. You're down like 40%. I, I, you know, do you ever regret being a public company, or is it a decision you think has been the right one? I, I still think it's been the right decision. Certainly, we've had our ups and downs. I mean, we've had some incredible highs, like literally hitting an all-time high, I think, the day after Lehman Brothers failed. We've had some incredible highs, and we've had some periods where the market's really, you know, sentiment's gone very much against us, as it has uh, so far uh, this year, and, and so you sort of see the lows. But but I think if you if you really think through the strategic benefits of being public, it's exactly as we thought about it all the way back 11 years ago, where we thought, number one, it will raise our profile among sort of in the corporate world generally to be a public company. And number two, it will give us the ability to attract new people. And then, you know, essentially you're recycling shares. You know, as, as, as partners get more senior, older, eventually retire, they're going to sell their shares, of course. And the firm is almost constantly in the market buying shares back. 
And once it does that, it pays those shares out to people coming up through the ranks as part of their compensation. So, you know, that system of significant uh, share ownership, of transitioning one generation to the next, and of, you know, having the high, higher profile that goes with the public company, that's worked out well. And I think you just have to accept that, you know, m- the market can uh, can get too positive in its sentiment sometimes, and it can get too negative, and you just have to sort of keep yourself and your team on, on more of an even keel. So, Scott, just, you know, w- one more question about Greenhill before we sort of get into your the M&A career stuff. Uh, you mentioned it briefly. You guys hit your all-time high the day after Lehman collapse. That's really unusual. And in fact, looking at your stock price, did pretty well throughout the financial crisis. And yet now, and what listeners of this show certainly know, as we've mentioned it every week, is the biggest M&A year of all time. And you guys are an M&A advisory firm. Your shares are down 40%. So what is the story behind that? Um, you know, I think during the financial crisis, the, the markets, you're right, I mean, it's kind of peculiar, right? The world's coming to an end, Lehman Brothers is failing, AIG's on the brink, and here's Greenhill hitting an all-time high. You know, I think the market was just overly optimistic about the, the notion that maybe we could just hoover up all the market share, that the big banks that were going through a lot of tribulations were going to give up. So I think that, that's why we were kind of, you know, frankly, too high for a period of time through the financial crisis when business was quite difficult. Um, you know, today I think we're, and I've been very clear with our shareholders, I, I think we're quite uh, very much at the other end of the spectrum of really, really being uh, really being undervalued, or at least certainly have a you know, market reflecting a very pessimistic point of view that I think is kind of the flip side of that kind of over-optimism it had a while ago. We started the show talking about Dow and DuPont merging. One of the biggest deals you guys have advised on in your history was Dow Chemicals' $19 billion acquisition of Raman Haas back in... 2008 was just curious to get your thoughts on the implications of that deal of the Dow DuPont transaction. Yes. Yeah, look, I think it's it's obviously an ex, you know, it's one of many sort of extraordinary really strategic transactions that have occurred this year. It's also one like many of the others that is going to have a very long regulatory review, kind of the issue I was just referring to for some of the transactions we've announced over the course of the year. So it's going to have, you know, even a longer than probably almost any transaction uh we'll see in terms of regulatory review. And then of course they're going to split it into three companies. I'll just put it this way, it'll be very interesting to see how it all plays out, right? Because a company doesn't stay static. And if you've got a transaction process that is literally going to be multiple years long, it's going to be a challenge, I think, as just a, a man from a management perspective to be running as two independent companies, gigantic merger, then almost immediately followed by splitting into three pieces. And, you know, uh, how much are you going to lose in terms of just execution of the business day to day while you're going through what, what probably has to be about the most complex transaction in corporate history when you think about, you know, kind of almost simultaneously doing a huge merger and splitting not into two pieces, but into three. Hey, Scott, how's the activist? Uh, we were talking earlier when we were talking about Dow DuPont, we were talking about Nelson Peltz and uh, Dan Loeb. I'm just curious how the activist uh, involvement or the, the rise of activists, how that's impacted your world and if you spend uh, find yourself spending a lot of time across the table from these guys. Yes, it, I mean, it certainly has had a dramatic impact. I mean, you had a few players like this. I mean, even back in the mid-'80s, I remember working on deals against Carl Icahn, one of the first things I ever worked on. 
uh, Phillips Petroleum when he and Team T. Boone Pickens in sort of two uh, attempts, uh, one right after the other, trying to take it over. So some of these guys have been around a long time. But today, you know, first of all, the scale of the funds is so much bigger, right? You, they can even influence a company like Apple or Dow or DuPont or, or some, uh, you know, any, any company of that, that kind of scale. Um, so they've had a big impact, I would say, in driving corporate activity, which obviously in some ways is a good thing for us because it makes companies more likely to either, you know, sell themselves or break up through spinoffs and things like that, another thing they drive very often. We've kind of made it a policy that we're always going to work on the corporate side because we just feel like, you know, sort of the attitudes and the the approach of the activists is really so different for kind of mainstream corporate and global America, corporate America and, and the global equivalent, uh, that you sort of have to choose sides. And, and we've decided, look, it's not that every activist idea is a bad one by any stretch. A lot of them are quite good. A lot of them are quite well thought out. Uh, but as we work through how those those challenges should be resolved, we've chosen that we're going to be on the corporate side. So it's been a theme, I think, for a little while now, Scott, where we've seen independent advisory firms such as yourself that really uh, base their business on advice. I mean, there's certainly, you know, Paul Tubman started his place, and there's Molis, and there's Lazard, and you know, there's littler places in my world of tech media telecom. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, are there too many boutiques now, or are we still in sort of the growth phase of this? Well, I'm not sure how much growth really is left, but I don't, on the other hand, think there are really too many. I mean, what I would say, just to put it kind of in historic context, is that we're sort of back to the future a little bit. You know, the business was very, very fragmented 30 years ago. There were kind of lots of big, there were some big firms, certainly Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, where I worked and so on. But there were a lot of specialists that were boutiques in kind of a different way, either by a region like the UK or maybe a different region, you know, Macquarie in Australia or Deutsche Bank in Germany. Um, or they were specialists by an industry sector. We then went through like a 25-year period, sort of the first 25 years of my career, where the whole industry consolidated to the point where, you know, by the time Greenhill was formed, probably it was the case that 95% of all investment M&A fees, maybe not all investment banking, but M&A fees were paid to one of nine firms. You know, there were, there were five in the U.S., Goldman, Morgan Stanley, Lehman, J.P. Morgan, City, et cetera. Uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, and there were a few in in Europe with uh, Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank, UBS. Those nine firms really had all the business. And what's been interesting over the last, say, 10 years or so is how fragmented it's become again. Because you're absolutely right. It's not just, you know, some firms that are very, very much like us, like Evercore or Molis uh, or Pearl Weinberg or, or Lazard being a little bit bigger version, but lots and lots of smaller ones, too, that may just do one region like the U.K., or they may just do one sector like a catalyst in technology or a tutor pickering in energy. Uh, and they're probably, I mean, I would count there are more than 40 firms today that, that could win a piece of business in competition against Greenhill. So instead of competing against sort of nine or 10, we're competing against 40. On the other hand, clients are way more open-minded than they, than they were. Certainly when our firm started out, you know, it was a challenge to say, hey, don't use, you know, Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan. Use Greenhill. We're, you know, we're eight people in an office on 52nd Street. That's become a very easy sale as corporate boards and CEOs have become very open-minded about using us or other boutique specialists. Scott, last question for me. Is there one deal in your mind that you worked on that didn't happen that you think would have really changed the world if it had happened? 
You know, I'm I'm reluctant to uh, to say talk about deals that that didn't happen unless I really felt like the statute of limitations was was way way beyond. But I'll say this maybe a different way of answering the question, and, and this is the reason I, I don't want to name specific names. If I look at many of the deals that Greenhill has announced, for example, uh, and, and well, and you've heard the same thing about the recent Dow Dupont deal that it was talked about for years. You know, many of our deals were talked about for years. So so you have these situations where again and again. You know, you're sort of you know what makes sense strategically. The company does, its board does, but you really need the stars to align. So literally, there are deals. There's one actually I'm about to announce. Um, you know, very very shortly that uh, that is something I've worked on off and on for ten years, and it, and it sounds like from what I read about Dow Dupont that that was one that was in the works for several years as well. At times, I'm sure it seemed completely dead in ancient history and never going to happen. But obviously, when the stars align, whether that's about you know the interests of different management. On either side, or you know, retirement ages or can have a role, or stock prices falling into alignment so the two companies get to the right uh, relationship in terms of valuation, and suddenly these things that sort of seemed dead uh, end up coming back to life. Scott Box, CEO of Greenhill, has been in the game for a long time, and uh, we look forward to seeing what Greenhill has to offer, and look forward to watching you guys continue as a public company, unless you decide to sell yourself, in which case. You know the place to make that announcement. <laughs> yes, we do. We'll be, be sure we'll call 1-800-Bloomberg when we do that. There you go. Appreciate that. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you. Scott. So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real time. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And definitely take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949 and Jeff McCracken at JC McCracken. We'll see you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.